It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, and welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. Last week, U.S. President Joe Biden was in Europe. It was his first trip abroad as president. You know, I've said both publicly and privately that America's back, and which is why we're here in full force. Europe is, uh, is uh, our, our natural partner. And the reason is we're committed to the same democratic norms and institutions. Biden started with a G7 meeting in the UK, where he saw fellow leaders of wealthy democracies, then to Brussels, and meetings with European Union and NATO leaders. And then away from the warm embrace of allies, he headed to Geneva and what was expected to be a test year encounter with Russian President Vladimir Putin. But I'm not looking for conflict with Russia, but that we will respond if Russia continues its harmful activities. Before the trip, Biden had spoken about what he wanted to get out of it. He planned to convince the U.S.'s friends that America was back after four years in which his predecessor, Donald Trump, had often disparaged U.S. allies and had seen little utility in alliances themselves. He hoped to muster allies' support against China, and he also talked about setting some red lines for Putin. More broadly, Biden has spoken repeatedly about an alliance of democracies standing up to authoritarians. We have to face a lot of challenges, a lot of crisis, climate change, and, um, and for all these issues what we need is cooperation. And I think it's great to have uh, the US president part of the club and uh, very willing to, to, to cooperate. That was French President Emmanuel Macron. For Macron and other Western leaders, Biden is fresh air after Trump. But prospects that Trump or someone like him could be back in a few years still cast a long shadow over relations with the US. Nor is it clear that other G7 leaders want to get sucked into a zero-sum global contest with China. So how did Biden fare in his first foray abroad? What does the trip tell us about his foreign policy? And most important, for a conflict prevention organisation like Crisis Group, how will Biden manage relations with Russia and with China? We're going to talk about all this with Michael Hanna, who's Crisis Group's U.S. director and an expert on U.S. foreign policy. Michael, thanks so much for coming on. 
Great to be with you both. Michael, could we start then with Biden's first stop, the the G7 summit in the English coast of Cornwall? How did that work out? Could Biden's Western allies put the Trump years behind them? Well, I think they got to put them behind them for a brief period of time. Uh, and I think the Trump years loom large over all U.S. interactions with, with uh, allies and partners. Uh, you know, Biden can consider the trip, I think, a success. Uh, in this first meeting, he noted that America is back at the table. Um, and of course, you know, this is the first in-person meeting of the G7 in almost two years, I believe, because of the pandemic. So it's it's a mark of several beginnings. Um, and of course, as you noted, there was a pretty enthusiastic reception. Uh, Trump had been uh, a very serious, disruptive presence at these kinds of international forums. Uh, there was an air of unpredictability. And this was a return to something approximating normalcy, not the pre-Trump status quo ante. The world has moved on um, in very important ways. Uh, but it was a return to some professionalism, preparation, and a sense that there were no surprises uh, in store. This was a very prepared meeting, the first in a kind of sequence of meetings to to get the house in order before uh, going to Geneva to meet uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, and so it unfolded, I think, very uh, smoothly. Uh, but as you mentioned, of course, in the background is this specter of U.S. political dysfunction. January 6th and the kind of assault on the U.S. Capitol prior to the inauguration of President Biden was not even six months ago. And the democratic erosion that uh, much of the world was wrapped by and witnessed uh, firsthand um, continues to be on display. Uh, and so I think there are understandable concerns among U.S. Uh, partners and allies about what the future holds and the current direction of U.S. politics. And it would be understandable if there is a fear that Biden is a mere reprieve and that Trump or some version of Trump is in store in the future. And of course, that kind of turbulence is very difficult to to manage. So, Michael, on the one hand, we had a lot of language and discussion, as you point out, on the importance of alliance and the kind of the return to at least a predictable a professional diplomacy. But overall, on the arguably biggest issue of the day, COVID-19, the discussion seemed a bit underwhelming. Is that a fair assessment? I think certainly. The G7 committed to providing 1 billion vaccine doses for low and middle income countries uh, over the next year, uh, most of that to be donated through COVAX. And the, and the U.S. has agreed to provide 500 million of those doses. That seems like a big number, but of course, the WHO suggests that the needed amount is 11 billion doses. Uh, and so it's a huge gap. And I think it's fair to say these countries lack the necessary urgency to tackle this uh, problem. It is clearly the most important agenda in the world at the moment. Many low and middle income countries with very little social safety net uh, are now facing this surge, primarily caused by new variants, the Delta variant. In particular, the impact on uh, global inequality could be severe. Um, if we look at Africa, 47 of Africa's 54 countries are set to miss the very modest target for vaccinations of 10% by September. So I would echo what Gordon Brown, the former UK prime minister, uh, has noted, and that this is a, a colossal failure uh, and much more um, should have been expected. There are huge challenges on patent waiver. There's very little progress there. Not too much progress on local manufacturing. 
And so I think it's a missed opportunity and you know, primarily because it will mean uh, the difference between lives saved and lives lost. But there's a host of self-interested reasons that all of these countries uh, should be leading much more effectively on this, you know, namely the rise of these variants, the fears about what they could mean for uh, vaccine efficacy in the future, the economic costs uh, of an ongoing and expanding uh, pandemic. And from the perspective of the United States, uh, this was a huge opportunity to, to burnish its soft power uh, after many years of, I think, uh, eroded trust and faith in American capacity. And it seemed like uh, a very important opportunity for the United States to, uh, to do good and to do good by itself as well. And Michael, beyond the pledge on vaccines, which, as you say, seems very underwhelming, there was a lot of language from Biden himself, as we heard up top before he left on his trip to Europe, about an alliance of democracies. It's kind of been a theme of his administration since coming to office. Uh, and yet there was this, you know, the sort of key members of his alliance of democracies in uh, Cornwall at the G7. And he seemed then to kind of tone the rhetoric down a little bit. You think that reading is right? And does that make sense? I think that reading is right. You know, before he uh, embarked on the trip, he had an op-ed in the Washington Post uh, where he framed the trip as about the ability of democracies and democratic alliances to prove their capacity against threats and adversaries. Um, I would say at the G7, he did make a comment to suggest that the G7 itself, that the organization was in a contest with autocracies. And so th there is a fine line uh, between arguing that this is a moment of challenge to democracies uh, and that there is a test for democracies to prove their continued vitality, resilience, and ability to uh, provide for their own people and to exert leadership on the world stage. It's a very different thing to suggest, uh, and I think quite problematic, uh, to suggest that these democratic countries are in an ideological contest uh, with China, a clash of systems. And clearly the greatest challenge to, to democracy at the moment is internal. Uh, and so the struggle between democracy and autocracy is happening within uh, democratic societies. And so it's not clear to me that this is an accurate description of what is happening on the world stage. Um, I think there are ways for the United States to bolster its own democracy increase confidence in its own democratic institutions and to stand up for liberal values in the world uh, without necessarily casting that in a kind of, uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, a zero-sum ideological contest with China. I think those are different things. And I hope that the more cautious approach and the move away from the idea of a kind of clash of systems is the one that prevails um, and, you know, I think that's a much more uh, effective approach to competition with China uh, and Russia, uh, but also, I think importantly, a much more uh, apt description of what is actually going on in the world at present. Yeah, indeed. And we'll come to China in a moment because it was the theme that hung over the whole trip. But I mean, just to pick up again on this Alliance of Democracies point, and again, as you say, Biden seems to have sort of moved away from that a little bit in this trip, but it's also just... It doesn't seem to kind of reflect the world as it is. The US, to pursue any of its interests in the world, is going to have to work with governments of all stripes and does work with governments of all stripes. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. It fails to describe current reality. If we look at US partners in the world, 
Um, yes, this was a meeting of the G7, uh, and so a small constellation uh, of democratic partners. Uh, but more broadly, the United States deals with a wide variety of partners and allies, uh, many of which, as you note, are uh, not democratic. Um, so again, I think there is an aspirational aspect to this um, that has always imbued uh, U.S. foreign policy, at least at the level uh, of rhetoric, uh, for pushing for liberal values and, and uh, democratic change. Uh, but the reality is that the United States is engaged, uh, if we look at the Middle East, with a host of autocratic partners. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I think, again, it is not uh, reflective of the current state uh, of geopolitics. Um, and it's not re reflective of the way that China has engaged uh, in the world. China engages quite transactionally um, and has been less uh, concerned with uh, forms of governance. So, Michael, let's move on to NATO and Brussels. Uh, what are the key highlights there? Yeah, as expected, Biden made a very clear point to recommit to the alliance and Article 5 obligations. Obviously, it's a major, major shift from the very disruptive focus of Trump uh, on burden sharing uh, in a way that sort of overrode all uh, other concerns. And, uh, you know, that I think that's a huge relief for NATO and just a major, a major shift, much less uh, disruption, a much, a much more understandable set of interactions for uh, America's NATO partners. Um, I think the other thing that was quite clearly noted coming out of, uh, of the NATO meetings um, was some of the language in the communique. Uh, so a reference to climate change, which is a, a big shift from uh, the Trump administration, uh, and perhaps most importantly, the references to China. And, you know, I think a lot has been made of that. I would note that China is referenced as a challenge and not a threat in distinction to the way that Russia uh, is discussed in the communique, uh, but the the inclusion is quite notable and uh, and I think immediately caused a little bit of uh, divergence uh, when you heard the way that Macron or Merkel talked about China a little different and I think it raises a question about the appropriateness of of NATO as a forum to be uh, discussing China. I think uh, if one wanted to kind of understate what inclusion meant you would focus on the kinds of challenges that China poses to NATO countries, whether that be cyber or otherwise, that are not necessarily tied to geography, right? So not thinking of NATO as a, as a kind of projection of power into the Indo-Pacific, but looking at the ways in which uh, increasing Chinese coercion or efforts in, in cyber could be challenges to NATO. So you know, I think an issue in which uh, NATO itself is not necessarily uh, on the same page, I wouldn't imagine this is a major reorientation of security policy, uh, but clearly a notable development. And Michael, so Biden also, while he was in Brussels, saw Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. He's generally been, until now, kind of quite cool towards Erdogan. Their meeting, by all accounts, seems to have been pretty cordial. It looks like the Turkey is going to secure Kabul airport in Afghanistan after the US pulls out. They still disagree on Turkey's purchase of the Russian missile system, the S-400s. How do you see US-Turkey relations after that meeting? Yeah, I think it's indicative of a broader shift to pragmatic engagement uh, across the board. I think it's not just limited to Turkey. Uh, during the campaign, uh, then-candidate Biden had quite 
harsh commentary uh, and remarks on Erdogan, on Sisi, on Putin. Um, and we've seen a very clear shift from that kind of uh, campaign rhetoric uh, to a much more sober engagement uh, with uh, problematic allies and partners, Turkey uh, among them. Uh, as you mentioned, there are a host of disagreements and uh, and obviously, this you know at the beginning of the administration with the with the recognition of of the Ar uh, Armenian genocide, um, this is not a relationship that is on particularly uh, firm footing, um, and and none of those issues are going to disappear. But I think this represents an effort to compartmentalize, uh, to isolate the things that the United States and Turkey can work on collaboratively and cooperatively. Uh, without having any uh, undue illusions about where uh, this relationship stands. Let's go to the meeting with Putin. As we said earlier, Biden suggested that perhaps one of the goals of the meeting was to set some red lines vis-a-vis -vis the Russian leader. Do you think Biden got what he wanted from that? And what about Putin himself? Yeah, I, I think much of the commentary going into the meeting was about the low expectations on both sides. Uh, and I think that's quite fair. Um, U.S.-Russian relations are uh, at a very low point uh, in historic terms. Um, and the, the issues dividing the two countries um, are, uh, are major. And it's very difficult to imagine a bridging of the gaps on the most important files. But I think there has been some positive momentum created by the summit. And some, uh, you know, enthusiastic reception, much more so than I imagined on the front end um, in, in Russia. Uh, and, and I think even a, a slight softening of, of the rhetoric, uh, Putin went out of his way to speak in what can we can say is sort of guardedly complimentary terms about uh, Biden. Um, and there are some immediate takeaways from the from the meeting itself. So, you know, the return of ambassadors is a very positive step a framework for continued dialogue on strategic stability and arms control, um, and then an agreement to talk about and extend the conversation on, on cybersecurity. They met for quite a, a number of hours and the readout uh, was sort of limited. So clearly there was a, a much more that was discussed uh, behind uh, closed doors. So, you know, I think what we could say is, is the meeting produced a pause uh, in the deterioration of relations um, and creates at least the framework for continued dialogue and discussion. Now, when you create these uh, frameworks, um, you know, I think it creates at least the possibility uh, for even in incremental change uh, and improvement. And we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, the, the two leading nuclear uh, powers in the world. These are states that really do uh, require uh, uh, strategic dialogue. You know, I think those are all positive outcomes. You know, I think there is this hope uh, that by treating Russia in this fashion, uh, that not only does it provide the potential for future dialogue on a host of important issues, uh, but might also arrest the tightening of ties between uh, Russia and China, which has to loom large for the United States thinking about great power competition in the future. And maybe not just arrest tightening Russia-China relations, but also just keep the Russia file quiet, in a sense, for the US. Uh, try to avoid any escalation. I mean, as the, the expression Biden used a lot before the, the meeting was, you know, guardrails specifically to kind of avoid problems. In that sense, the meeting seems to have been a, a, a success. And, you know, China was, it was the big theme of the trip and seems to be emerging as the big theme 
in some ways of US foreign policy. What do you make of that? Does that make sense, this big strategic rivalry with China and kind of subordinating, it seems, a lot of other foreign policy interests to that rivalry? I think that's clearly where things seem to be headed. You know, I think there was a lot of preparation to uh, create the appearance of acting uh, and speaking in one voice. Um, the United States, you know, sequenced these meetings and uh, throughout uh, was hopeful of uh, having its partners and allies uh, speaking in unison on China. That wasn't always fully successful, um, but clearly based on Biden's uh, previous comments, his approach to these meetings, um, he believes uh, in the necessity of a kind of uh, unified effort uh, to counter China. Um, you know, I, I would say that in in my discussions with various U.S. officials in recent months since the Biden administration uh, came into office, uh, I've been struck with just how much China figures in the conversation on every file. Uh, and so when U.S. officials uh, responsible for uh, the Middle East are thinking about the region, they're not just thinking about uh, U.S. actions in the region and U.S. partners and, and allies in the region, but are thinking quite clearly about China's role in the region. And so China has become this overlay uh, in terms of the way that the United States thinks about uh, its role in the world. Uh, but there are real problems with creating a kind of all-encompassing framework that is going to drive U.S. foreign policy uh, in all forums. Um, it it's, it's reminds me of the ways in which uh, the global war on terrorism created a kind of central animating rationale for U.S. actions uh, across uh, the globe. I think there are potentially problematic aspects to uh, organizing uh, uh, a country's entire foreign policy based on this kind of zero-sum competition. Um, I thought it was notable to see uh, Bernie Sanders, a senator from Vermont, former presidential candidate, uh, writing in foreign affairs about uh, his own concerns about this framing a fear about what it could mean uh, for not just competition with China, but but also sacrificing uh, the potential for engagement. It's clear that uh, if we as an international community want to think clearly about uh, pandemic preparation or climate change or these huge uh, challenges that face us at the moment, um, U.S.-China uh, cooperation is a necessity. These things are not going to be uh, tackled successfully um, if each interaction is is marked by uh, friction and zero sum competition, I would note that you know, you know the the dynamics of this in political terms in the United States are quite worrisome. The asymmetric polarization of American politics uh, means that any uh, appearance of of being soft on China, any efforts to engage China. Uh, are going to be demagogued. And that's not going to produce a very healthy discourse and debate about how best the United States can uh, can engage with China and compete with China. Even uh, domestically, we've seen during this period of heightening and, uh, and quite harsh rhetoric vis-a-vis -vis China, we've seen a deterioration in uh, anti-Asian hate crimes uh, against Asian Americans and others in the United States. I think uh, you know, that Sanders piece was a fair warning about the ways in which this kind of competition could really go off the rails in very problematic ways. Michael, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. So, Naz, is, uh, is America back? 
Well, Richard, I, I was thinking while Michael was giving us his, his analysis of these various meetings that it, it seems like we're still in the phase of the, the big exhale of just the return, as he said, to kind of the baseline expectations that one might have of the United States, professional diplomacy, planning out of meetings, a sense of somewhat predictable expectations for how these meetings will go. That said, I, I was struck by Michael's comments and also some of what we're seeing in broader commentary. They think there is still a question about what does that mean for an active foreign policy strategy? What does the Biden administration want to see uh, over the next four years and beyond after there is this sense that, yes, the U.S. is sort of, it is back. So we hear comments, for example, such as it's not going to be as it was status quo ante. It's going to be something different. We hear some of these, uh, as as Peter Beinart said in the New York Times, kind of the vacuous phrases uh, such as rule-based international order that don't necessarily mean a great deal in terms of substance and strategy. So I think the question is, Sure, wonderful, we are back, uh, whatever that means. But are we going to see an actual shift in foreign policy? And what does that shift look like? Yeah, I think that's that's really well put. And as we sort of ended on in the conversation with Michael, it does seem like a big part of Biden's foreign policy is going to be this competition with China. You know, In some ways, that's something he shared with his predecessor, with Trump. And, you know, in fact, it's one of the few things on which there's consensus across the political spectrum in the US. Now, the administration doesn't even seem to want the sort of relationship with Beijing that it's been seeking with Putin. So sort of establishing red lines, avoid an escalation, find areas where you can work together. Instead, with China, Biden seems to want to kind of corral allies into standing up to Beijing. That's what a lot of this past trip was about. Fix US domestic politics, show the value of the American political system, which is going to be tough given where Congress is at the moment, and do that before seriously engaging with Beijing. Now, of course, there's a lot to object to in aspects of Chinese behaviour at home and abroad. There's the repression in Tibet and Hong Kong, threats against Taiwan, the, the horrific treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, throwing its weight around in in the South and East China Seas. And you know, from Crisis Group's perspective, there's also Beijing's cruel, unjust and, and arbitrary detention of my colleague, Michael Kovrig, and another Canadian, Michael Spavel. Michael, our Michael, in early September, he'll have spent a thousand days in Chinese jail, a thousand days in what is basically hostage diplomacy. They detained him in response to the Canadian government's detention of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. So, of course, there's plenty to worry about. And, of course, some degree of competition between the US and China is inevitable. But the issue is whether closing down space for cooperation with China across the board, closing down space for cooperation on stuff like climate change, vaccines rollout, as Michael talks about, making it harder to work together on multilateral crisis management, on the Security Council, for example, on crises like Myanmar, on Afghanistan, on conflicts in Africa. You know, this competition is going to cast a long shadow over multilateralism more broadly. And maybe just the last point, which is that many leaders across the world, even among US allies and partners, they don't want to choose in such stark terms between the US and China. You know, they want the benefits of reasonably cordial relations with both. So I think, as Michael said, there's plenty to worry about in this new consensus in Washington 
about the importance of big competition with China. Yeah, and and just to your point, I was also struck, Michael referred towards the end to the question of of what the foreign policy debate in the U.S. will look like and, and what the Biden administration needs to do to convince domestic audiences about its approach to foreign policy. And and surely that will be one of the biggest challenges this administration faces is, of course, there are questions about China, Putin and others, but also what does it mean to establish a, a new discourse and a new approach to these issues within an incredibly divided uh, U.S. political context? Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Mudirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find more of our work on our website, crisisgroup.org, or follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producers, Maeve Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. And thank you especially to our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment, a rating or review. Tell your friends about us if you like the show. And we hope you'll join us again next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.